Welcome to the Director's Chair, a Lowy Institute podcast. My name is Michael Forleylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I sit down with political leaders, policymakers and commentators in order to understand what's happening in the world. I'm delighted that my guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the former United States military commander and diplomat, Harry Harris. Born in Yokosuka in Japan, Admiral Harris grew up in Crossville, Tennessee and Pensacola, Florida, and graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in 1978. He also earned graduate degrees from Harvard and Georgetown. He had a fascinating military career serving in a number of important posts, culminating in his appointment as commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet and later as the commander of U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Subsequently, Harry served as President Trump's ambassador to South Korea between 2018 and 2021. Thank you, Harry Harris, for joining me on the director's chair direct from Colorado Springs. Michael, it's great to be with you. All right, let's go right back to the beginning, Harry. You were born in Japan, as I said, but you grew up in Tennessee and Florida. How did this come about? How did your folks meet? My folks met during the occupation of Japan. Uh, Mm. My dad was a Navy uh, chief petty officer. Uh, He'd served in uh, World War II and in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. We're stationed in Japan. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother, Japanese uh, girl, and uh, they met in the early 50s. I got married in 55, and I came along a year later. As you mentioned, your father served in the Navy, and I think, in fact, he fought in the Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942, which was a significant battle in the Pacific War, an important moment in the defense of Australia, actually. Did you grow up wanting to serve at sea like your dad? Uh, I grew up knowing that I was going to serve. He was on the Lexington, which was sunk uh, at Coral Sea. Obviously, he he made it through. But I grew up with the knowledge that I would serve. Uh, My father had five brothers, and they all, all but one served in the Army or in the Navy. And so I just grew up uh, knowing that uh, I'd serve at some point in some service. So after high school, you moved to Annapolis in Maryland to attend the U.S. Naval Academy, and then you went on to become a Navy pilot. So tell us about that, Harry. Well, uh, you know, I grew up in Pensacola, uh, Florida, as you said. Uh, that's where naval aviation training uh, starts uh, for all uh, uh, Navy flyers. So I was uh, in that environment. I got to see the Blue Angels uh, back in the day. They flew mm-hmm. F-4 Phantoms. And I grew up taking the junior ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps uh, stuff in high school. So I had the chance to go to the Naval Academy. Uh, mm-hmm. I jumped at it. Uh, and uh, after I graduated from the Academy, I decided I wanted to fly. So I went back to Pensacola to, to earn my wings uh, and start my flying adventure, uh, if you will. And you logged over 4,000 flight hours, including more than 400 combat hours. How did your experience of combat shape your attitude towards the use of military force as a senior officer? It taught me that the individual matters and training is the most important thing. You don't want to try something new in combat. You want to continue with what you've been trained to do. And I was trained well. I had great instructors, great mentors. And then uh, each of my uh, flying hours in combat, uh, I was prepared for them. All right. You served in a lot of interesting positions. And one of them that jumps out is when in 2006, you were appointed commander of the Joint Task Force in Guantanamo. Now, you probably didn't go into the Navy to be a jailer, Harry. There's been a lot of discussion, of course, over the last 20 years about the treatment of detainees at Guantanamo and the impact of that on the reputation of the United States. Give us your perspective. What was that job like for you? Well, it was the hardest job that, that I'd ever done. You know, certainly, as you said, I had no training 
to be a detention camp commander. Uh, I had no experience commanding troops. There was a heavily Army, U.S. Army uh, formation down there. At the time I got there, there were well over 500 detainees. The national interest from uh, Washington and from the media, mm-hmm. uh, that national interest in what we were doing in Guantanamo was uh, significant. And, and it exposed me to a lot of things that, uh, that I'd read about but never experienced, you know, the media scrutiny and all that. It taught me a lot. Uh, I came out of uh, Guantanamo a much better prepared joint officer. And uh, I learned also that probably the most important thing is, uh, you know, you don't, you don't always get to go where you want to go. Sometimes mm-hmm. you're, you're told to go to other places. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, depending on how you do uh, in those difficult jobs, the jobs you don't like will shape the opportunities that you might be given downrange. Were there moments in that job where you felt uncomfortable about what you had to do? What conclusions did you draw about the impact that that facility had on America's reputation in the world? Well, uh, you know, uh, that, that the second part of your question is really a question that's bigger uh, than all of us uh, in Guantanamo. You know, we had a job to do and we tried to do it uh, the best way all of us could. You know, there were 1,800 or, or so troops down there. Each of the troops uh, was dedicated to the mission uh, and, uh, and, you know, we, we tried to get on with it. I was uncomfortable, uh, to be honest with you, from the day I walked ashore in Guantanamo, walked aboard, and then to the day I left. Uh, it was just a hard job. I had a lot of support. Uh, again, the troops were, were terrific, uh, and uh, I learned from them, uh, and I learned from the staff there, uh, and I learned a lot about myself. President Obama tried and failed to close Guantanamo Bay, and in February, President Biden announced a review of Guantanamo, and he reportedly also intends to close the facility before he leaves office. Do you think that would be a good thing? I think that, uh, you know, with 40 detainees down there, uh, been there about 20 years now, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't know how many troops are down there now. I think 1,500 or maybe a little bit less. That's a lot of uh, manpower. Mm. Uh, to look after uh, 40 detainees mm. at an enormous expense to the taxpayer. Can there be or is there a better way of detaining them? Sure. You know, we have to go through some legal issues, uh, you know, detaining them on American soil. Mm-hmm. It involves a lot of complex uh, legal issues, especially for those who might not uh, be charged. Those are issues that are well beyond, you know, my expertise, but they can't be washed under the table if the decision is made to close Guantanamo. I mentioned before, Harry, you've served in really a a very wide variety of of roles, which sort of reminds us of how broad the experience can be for a military officer in the United States. And one of the roles that you served in between 2011 and 2013 was as military advisor to the Secretary of State, principally Hillary Clinton, but I think briefly John Kerry as well. And I've seen in reports that Secretary Clinton gave you a photograph uh, at the end of that on which she wrote, Harry, thanks for traveling the world with me, Hillary. So tell me your impressions of Hillary Clinton as an operator, Harry. I thought she was uh, terrific. Uh, I learned a lot from her. I learned a lot from her staff. Uh, That job that I had probably prepared me to be a four-star commander in the Pacific uh, Indo-PACOM more than any other job because of the the people that I, I met uh, when I worked with her, mm-hmm. 
and when I sat at the table with her, and she was very, uh, very inclusive. Mm. So uh, when she met with her counterparts, who were either foreign ministers or prime ministers or presidents, you know, I got to sit at the table with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those folks were the same folks that I dealt with uh, as the Indo-PACOM commander. Mm. So I learned that. And then, of course, going from the, the military to diplomacy uh, is, is no easy task. Mm. But that task for me was eased significantly by the experiences I had working inside the State Department and with the seventh floor uh, and with two secretaries of state. All right, Harry, in 2013, you were promoted to Admiral and Commander of the U.S. Pacific Fleet, and this is a big job for the U.S. Navy in particular. And more than any other American official, you drew attention to what China was up to in the South China Sea. You memorably stated in Australia, as it happens, that China was building a great wall of sand. In retrospect, do you think that the United States and its allies missed an opportunity to check China at this point? I do. Uh, I think that all of us, not only the United States, our, our allies certainly had our attention diverted, and rightly so, I might add, mm-hmm. to combat events uh, in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, you know, China started uh, building that Great Wall of Sand, if you will, in 2012. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, uh, has continued to pace. So I, I think we missed an opportunity back in the day, but that's water under the bridge uh, or over the sand, literally, mm-hmm. uh, because we have to deal with where we are today and leave the what could have been mm-hmm. to historians and science fiction writers. Mm. Well, let me ask you about that. Do you think China has created uh, too many facts on the water now? Is it a fait accompli or should the United States and its allies still be doing more, pushing more in the South China Sea? I think we have to continue to push for the rights of freedom of navigation mm-hmm. in the South China Sea and over the South China Sea. Mm. The facts uh, on the ground in the water are what they are. I can't imagine a scenario where China would voluntarily, willingly leave the um, uh, facilities that they've built up in the South China Sea. Mm. But that doesn't mean that we can't operate in and amongst and over those bases that the Chinese have built in the South China Sea because they built them illegally. Mm. You know, the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea held that the nine-dash line is basically illegal. Mm. And that's the foundation upon which China has asserted its right to build those uh, uh, formations of sand in the South China Sea. When you think back on that issue at the time, were you happy, were you comfortable with the support that Australia provided, for example, or would you have liked Australia to be more forward-leaning in relation to phone ops and other issues? No, very, very much grateful for the support from Australia. Australia was one, is one, was one of the few countries that would operate freely in the South China Sea and uh, were with us uh, at every turn. So I was very pleased with the support that the United States and Pacific Command received from Australia. All right, Harry, in 2015, you were appointed head of Pacific Command, which in May 2018 was renamed Indo-Pacific Command or Indo-PACOM. So you became one of the so-called combatant commanders. Now, for those who are not familiar with the US military, these are military commands comprised of units from multiple service branches reporting directly to the Secretary of Defense. And Harry, I think this meant that you commanded nearly 400,000 military personnel, 1,100 planes and approximately 200 ships. Now, I've got to ask you, what was this like? I mean, you were like an imperial viceroy. You had your own plane, your own staff, your own headquarters. What What does it feel like and what does it do to the human ego 
to be in that kind of role? I am married to Bruni, uh, who, who ensures that my ego doesn't get too far out of control, <laughs> if you know what I mean. But uh, it was an amazing job. It was the pinnacle and uh, the dream job of, of all the jobs in the U.S. military for me. Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, the area of responsibility was 52% of the globe. Uh, you know, we, we always said uh, in Hawaii, we call it the uh, from Hollywood to Bollywood, penguins to polar bears. Uh, and that sort of covered the, the region. But uh, with uh, that kind of uh, area comes a great deal of responsibility and a super staff. Mm-hmm. And uh, the staff helped me get through each day and uh, presented information to me in ways that I could deal with it. And, uh, you know, we set about uh, dealing with it. The job is as political as it is military. Mm-hmm. You know, we're responsible for the military plans for operations against any and all contingencies in the region, all the way from combat on one extreme to humanitarian assistance disaster response at the other. But we're also dealing politically with the leaderships of the countries in the region, uh, as well as with Washington, uh, which, you know, has its own challenges. It was an amazing job and uh, a great way to to end uh, my military career. Well, Harry, there were reports at the time that Beijing wanted to end that military career a little early for you. There were media reports, certainly, that China had urged President Trump to fire you in return for exerting more pressure on North Korea. Is that true? You know, I, I don't know if, if it's true. I, I, and I'm not trying to be coy. I, I simply don't know. Uh, I know what the, the media mm-hmm. said. I think it was the Japan Times that uh, spent a lot of time on that particular issue. Uh, before that, uh, there was criticism from China uh, when I was nominated to, to go to Canberra. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was significant pressure levied by China. And then uh, there was continuous pressure levied by China when I was in uh, Seoul. Mm. So, you know, uh, pressure from the PRC is nothing new, and it's very real. But to the specific case that, that you asked about, uh, I just know what I've read, uh, which I cannot verify. You mentioned Canberra, so let me, let me come to your, what I think of as your sliding doors moment. In February 2018, you were nominated as the next US ambassador to Australia. And you might recall I flew to Honolulu to call on you at Paycom HQ and to invite you to give the 2018 Lowy Lecture as the new ambassador. And then I flew back to Australia and uh, I told my board that we had our man. And shortly after I got back, I read in the paper that your nomination hearing in the Senate had been unexpectedly postponed. And a day later, President Trump put you forward as ambassador to South Korea. So I have to ask you, Harry, what happened? We were looking forward to having you. Yeah, I was looking forward to going to Canberra. Uh, To be honest with you, I don't know what happened other than uh, what actually uh, transpired. You know, I was in Washington Mm -hmm. on Sunday to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee Mm -hmm. on Tuesday. And that evening, uh, I received a call that said that my nomination to Australia was being pulled and I was being nominated instead uh, for Korea. Mm -hmm. So a little difference uh, between uh, Australia and the Republic of Korea. But, you know, uh, like uh, other jobs, uh, you know, you you roll with it. Uh, It's both jobs are important. Uh, I thought that Prime Minister Turnbull and and his cabinet in uh, Australia were completely and totally generous with their understanding uh, of President Trump's intent. They were gracious. It was handled uh, just in completely wonderful ways. 
Also, I'll just add, since we're on the record here, that I think uh, Australia traded up uh, when A.B. Culverhouse got there. Uh, he's terrific. Y'all traded up there, and, uh, and I went on to Korea and, and, uh, and finished out my time there. Well, let's talk about that. So you rolled with it. You went to Korea. You had this transition from Admiral to Ambassador. What's the difference between the two jobs? Which one's more fun? Well, it's fun is kind of a relative thing. You know, you don't always get to have fun when you're doing difficult jobs. There are fun aspects in both jobs. Scale is a little different. Mm-hmm. As you said, there were over 400,000 people in Indo-PACOM. There were 400 people at the embassy mm-hmm. in, uh, in Seoul. So the scale is a little different. Scope or time spent uh, on that uh, job uh, is the same. You know, at Indo-PACOM, I got up early in the morning and I dealt with the 36 countries uh, in the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I knew a little about all of them but not a lot about really any of them, mm-hmm. uh, with a couple of notable exceptions, of course. Going to Korea, it was all Korea, all day, mm-hmm. DPR, North Korea, PRC, uh, Japan, mm-hmm. and United States, all day, every day. And so, you know, I was completely focused on that. And uh, again, to go from the military to a diplomatic role is, is no easy task. I had a terrific staff uh, in Korea that helped me in every way imaginable to get through uh, the day. I was uh, pleased with the effort uh, that the staff put to carry me uh, into the job, uh, if you will. And the Koreans were great hosts, uh, as you might imagine. All right. Let me ask you about the particular challenges of being a U.S. ambassador when your president is Donald Trump. And I have to say, Harry, I felt for you in this period because you're an alliance man to your bones, but President Trump is not. And of course, when you were serving in Seoul, for instance, he demanded that South Korea pay much more, much, much more to cover the costs of US troops on the peninsula. And there were reports at different times that he, indeed he was considering withdrawing those troops. As an alliance enthusiast, what was it like working for an alliance skeptic? Uh, it was a, clearly a, a challenge, you know, and, and part of my job is to trying to convince, you know, my bosses in Washington mm-hmm. uh, the way I felt things ought to go or should be, uh, depending on the issue. You know, mm-hmm. And it's not just President Trump and, and his administration. That's the, the job of forward uh, emissaries, whether they're in the uniform or whether they're in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Mufti. So, you know, uh, the, the perception from headquarters is always different than the perception and the forward operating areas. So there's always a delta and there has to be communication and an attempt at conversion, if you will. Mm. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, I'm the president's ambassador. I'm mm. his emissary to South Korea. And my job is to represent the United States mm. and the president of the United States as elected by the American people. So if I didn't agree with a position that the president took, mm. uh, you know, I was obligated to try to change that view. But at the end of the day, uh, my job is to carry forth that view or resign. Mm. So you don't have a lot of options in that choice. Mm. So, you know, I, I felt that uh, the alliance was too important mm. for me to walk away from it and that I would do the best I could uh, with uh, the, the different things that President Trump wanted. And uh, I did that. All right. President Trump, of course, invested considerable time on Korean issues, and he met with Kim Jong-un three times during his presidency, including on that famous occasion in the demilitarized zone. You were present. Tell us a bit about that day, about your impressions of President Trump and also KJU on that day, and more broadly, 
whether you think his efforts to secure a deal with KJU were worth it in the end, whether they were well advised and whether they were worth it. In answering that question, we shouldn't forget President Moon. Uh, he was mm-hmm. clearly a part of that and he was there also. Mm-hmm. Uh, my impressions of Kim Jong-un, clearly a man in charge of his country and every aspect of the words in charge. Mm-hmm. And the meeting between him and President Trump was an important meeting. I was at uh, Pemujan. I had the chance uh, to meet Kim Jong-un. President Trump introduced me to him. Uh, that was uh, um, uh, a memorable That was a moment. moment. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, they went ahead with the, the meeting. Secretary Pompeo was there. President Moon was there and so on. To your question of was it, it worth it, I think that in hindsight, we'll, we will look back on this two-year, two-and-a-half-year period And I think we'll conclude that it was worth it because if for no other reason, you know, I was the Indo-PACOM commander in 2017 in November at the Mm -hmm. height, Mm -hmm. nuclear testing and the ICBM testing. You know, I testified in my confirmation hearing that that, uh, Kim Jong-un was, you know, launching missiles and doing underground nuclear tests willy-nilly, just at the drop of the hat almost. The tension in Seoul and in South Korea Mm -hmm. and in the region that tension was palpable. Mm. Uh, you know, you could you could just feel it. Uh, American businesses in Seoul, I'm told, because I wasn't there then, uh, were calling the embassy asking if they should leave. Mm. You know, hotels occupancy was down to probably COVID levels, right? Uh, and on and on and on. And so that, that tension was real. By the time I got there in, in July of 2018, they'd had the Singapore summit. And before that, the Pyeongchang Winter Olympics. You could see the tension just measurably, visibly mm. almost uh, dropping. Uh, and then up to the point that I left in January of 2021, there had been no subsequent nuclear tests or, or, or long-range missile tests. So uh, if for no other reason, you know, we had a two-and-a-half-year hiatus mm. on that kind of tension. And, you know, that, that two-and-a-half-year hiatus is, is continuing on mm. to the present moment. Mm. Uh, you know, COVID certainly has a lot to do with that and all the things associated with that. But it's important to note that for that two and a half years plus uh, to the present, uh, there has been a marked uh, reduction in tension. So that's important. And that's allowed the opportunity to think about other approaches. And I think we're going to see some of those other approaches play out in the Biden administration. You know, I really like uh, their their practical uh, approach that that he's talked about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he mentioned this calibrated practical approach. Kirk Campbell, one of the smartest guys around, you know, he's talked about a solutions based approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's important. I don't think we're going to see a top level, top down. I think it'll be more, if not bottom up, certainly at, at a moderate level, mm-hmm. uh, and then see where it goes. I think that's the right approach. But uh, for sure, uh, the Trump approach was novel. Uh, and produced a reduction in tension yep. uh, and created some hope on, on the peninsula, if you will. All right, let me ask you just a few more questions about your time as ambassador. I want to ask you about Mustache Gate. <laughs> when, when you were ambassador in Seoul, you, you grew what was some, some very fetching hair on your top lip. It didn't look very military in appearance to my eyes, but it was very flattering, of course. Anyway, it attracted a great deal of attention. <laughs> Tell us the inside story of Mustache Gate, Harry. Yeah, so uh, I grew it before I, I went to Korea because, you know, I retired on, 
on uh, June 1st, 2018. Mm -hmm. And I I got to Korea uh, on, I think, July 7th after some training in Washington. So in that time I was in Washington, I decided to grow a mustache, you know, to sort of mark a a break. Transition. From one career to to a new career. I showed up in in Korea in uh, in July with a mustache. It was not an issue. You know, the first question I got when I walked off the airplane was from a Stars and Stripes reporter who asked me about the mustache. (laughs) But there, there there was no bad uh, press about it. If there were any press at all, it was positive. But then, you know, uh, to get back uh, to your earlier question mm-hmm. uh, about uh, President Trump's policies and desires mm-hmm. with regard to the alliance and, you know, me having to carry that message forward as the ambassador, mm-hmm. then the Koreans, uh, uh, the Korean public, uh, the Korean media really uh, and some elements uh, of their government, they took uh, offense at the policies, but mm. they couldn't attack the president directly. Mm. So they attacked the person they could attack, which was me. Mm. Uh, and then, and then uh, you know, the mustache thing came out. But behind that uh, was an uncomfortable racism, mm. uh, if you will, uh, by uh, the Korean media and some, some elements uh, of the government. Not broad. Not widespread, but in those voices uh, was this element of racism harking back to my uh, Japanese American ethnicity, my Japanese mother. Mm. Uh, and, and then, you know, you got to the point where some of the positions that I took, which was simply because I was representing my government, those positions were uh, painted as due to my uh, ethnic background, mm. not because I was the American ambassador to Korea and mm. any American ambassador would have carried those uh, issues forward, mm. if you will. Mm. So that was hard to take. How did you deal with that, Harry? I just press on. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, I talked about it uh, to my Korean friends. I mentioned it in some media interviews in Korea, but you have to have a, a thick skin. Mm-hmm. Certainly had experience with it in some of the jobs I've had. And so, you know, uh, you, you uh, carry on. Mm. Um, that's, that's all you can do. Or again, uh, you can quit. Mm. All right, let me stay on the question of race, if I can. In mid-2020, the U.S. Embassy in South Korea draped a large Black Lives Matter banner over the embassy and tweeted a picture supporting the protests back in the United States. And you tweeted... The USA is a free and diverse nation. From that diversity, we gain our strength. Why did you decide to do that? And what fallout did it cause? I've always been a, a proponent of diversity. You know, I've, I've been recognized nationally in, the, in uniform mm-hmm. for being a champion of diversity. I believe in it. I think that the country has to represent, has to be a reflection of the people that we represent, mm-hmm. whether you're in uniform whether you're in the diplomatic corps or whatever you do, you know, uh, when, when a Korean person looks at an American diplomat, they should see not only the power uh, of the United States, mm-hmm. but also a reflection of the United States. Uh, so I'm a believer in diversity. I think diversity makes us a stronger military. It makes us a stronger country. Certainly, I'm a, I'm a benefactor of, of uh, diversity. I wouldn't be the person I am. Uh, were, were not from my background. Mm. So that's my personal belief. When George Ford was killed 
people not only in the United States, uh, but, but globally and, and Americans overseas felt that death. And the young foreign service officers at the embassy mm-hmm. in Korea felt that as well and wanted to do something. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we all wanted to do something. What can we do? Mm-hmm. You know, here we are representing the United States and Korea. American embassy sits on the largest square in Seoul, mm-hmm. directly across the street from the Korean foreign ministry. Mm-hmm. So the foreign minister looks out her window every day and sees the American embassy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's and good we real estate. flat large facade mm. that's just that just begs for things to be hung from it. so every every year uh you know uh, since i was there uh, we hung the lgbtqi rainbow banner mm. up when uh, george floyd uh, uh killing happened uh, i decided to put up a black lives matter banner mm. which was about 25 feet wide and maybe 40 feet tall. I mean, it was large. Mm, mm. And it covered the front of the facade. And then above it was the LGBTQI rainbow banner. Mm. That's a powerful signal, I thought, and I do think, for Koreans who are beginning to protest also. You know, uh, mm. protests were were global about uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, about George Floyd. Mm. So they were starting to protest also. And of course, you know, the place to protest in Seoul is Guanghamun Plaza, which mm. is where the embassy is on one side of it, foreign ministry is on the other. It allowed us in the embassy who cared uh, to show that we cared. Uh, and we were, uh, you know, uh, working in solidarity mm. with Americans across the United States. But it, it wasn't universal, mm-hmm. they uh, uh, applauded uh, in Washington. Harry, you were still a serving ambassador, I believe, at the time of the storming of the Capitol on the 6th of January. And I want to ask how you felt that day as someone who'd sworn to defend the United States and its constitution. Yeah, um, an important question. Uh, uh, I was the, uh, the serving ambassador. Uh, I felt that uh, it was an attack on the Capitol and it was an attack on American democracy itself. Mm. I put out a statement uh, to the embassy to let folks there know how I felt about it. And uh, uh, that, that statement got widespread distribution in, in Korea. Mm. Uh, and today, I still believe that it was an attack on American democracy. And at the same time, you and your listeners and, uh, you know, everyone has seen uh, the horrendous pictures uh, of the attack. Despite all of that, you know, I, I think what emerged from that is a stronger America. I think mm. it demonstrates resilience of American democracy, even Uh, as it uh, highlighted the attack on democracy itself. All right, Harry, let me finish just with a couple of contemporary questions. First of all, let me ask you how you think the Biden administration is going. You mentioned its approach to North Korea, but maybe you can talk a bit about its general approach to China and President Biden's convening of the first Quad leaders meeting a couple of months ago. I think the Biden administration is off to a great start. There is a clear recognition in the Biden administration, which follows on to the Trump administration, uh, that China uh, and the PRC, the People's Republic, uh, is our competitor. Uh, You know, Secretary Blinken uh, at his confirmation uh, hearing, uh, he said uh, that the tough approach by the previous administration is correct. He said that what is happening in uh, Western China against the Uyghurs is genocide. And what is happening in Hong Kong is gross human rights violations. So I think that follows on to the previous administration. Secretary Austin, Secretary of Defense, at his defense confirmation hearing said that uh, uh, 
he is going to be focused on China as the pacing threat, uh, and that he pledged support to Taiwan under the obligations we have uh, under the uh, Taiwan Relations Act. So I, I think that that is a continuation uh, of recognizing how uh, where China is vis-a-vis the United States. With regard to the Quad, uh, I thought that right out the shoot, President Biden and his team's approach to alliances is spot on. Right? He recognizes that alliances matter, relationships matter, that alliances aren't luxuries, they're essentials. Uh, and I think the Quad uh, is, is right, in, right in that sweet spot. You know, I, I get asked a lot if, you know, should Korea join the Quad, should so-and-so join the Quad and all this kind of stuff. And I've always likened it to American college football. You know, we have these conferences. Mm-hmm. We have the Big Ten Conference, which has 14 teams. You know, we have the Big 12 <laughs> Conference, which has 10 teams. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing that says the Quad has to have four teams. So, you know, I, I think that, that, that uh, the, what the Quad stands for, at least what, the, the, what we can surmise it stands for, you know, there's no statement of principles, mm-hmm. uh, but there is uh, a statement from the four leaders together mm-hmm. in, in, in an op-ed. And I think what it stands for, uh, a lot of countries who are our friends, our being Australians and Americans, friends, allies, mm-hmm. and partners, a lot of those countries, I think, would, uh, would find themselves aligned with the values as we understand them to be in the Quad more than the values as we understand them to emanate from Beijing. Mm. So it's up to them if they want to come in. Uh, and there has to be a mechanism to, quote, unquote, let them in. I don't know what that is. Mm. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, I, I think it, it speaks highly to President Biden and his administration's approach to alliances. Let me ask you, Harry, you, you didn't end up serving as ambassador in Canberra, but I'm sure you've watched uh, the course of Australia-China relations over the last few years. You've seen the steps that Australia has has taken to preserve its sovereignty, and you've seen the responses from China, including pretty significant trade sanctions essentially over the last year or so. What do you think about how Canberra has conducted itself? I think that Canberra, Michael, has conducted itself with great forbearance, uh, has taken the right approach, the brave, courageous approach with regard to China, uh, your largest trading partner. I think that your approach, uh, the 5G, uh, is commendatory and, and should be followed by many other countries. Uh, and I think that, that uh, we all ought not to be surprised at, at China's belligerent, bullyish, bullying behavior following any signs of criticism from any country uh, around the world. We should not be surprised when China, you know, reacts uh, in ways that threaten economic prosperity of Australia, of South Korea, of Europe, of Canada, of the United States, and all of that. This is uh, not, not, not a surprise. It is predicted, uh, and it uh, uh, is true to form, in my opinion. There are media reports that Caroline Kennedy, the former U.S. ambassador to Japan and, of course, the daughter of President Kennedy, is being considered as the next U.S. ambassador to Australia. We don't know how serious those reports are, but what kind of ambassador do you think Caroline Kennedy would make? I believe very strongly about this because I worked with her when I was an Indo-PACOM commander and she was ambassador to Tokyo. I think she would be a wonderful uh, ambassador to Australia. She would represent the American people uh, to Australia, the American government, to the Australian government, and 
uh, represent uh, honestly and, and with and with forthrightness uh, Australia and Australia's people's views back to Washington. She's well versed at, at, at being a diplomat. You know, Japan is not an easy spot. She was there for a long time. She gets those ropes. You know, she understands that uh, she brings an enormous amount of energy to the job. Uh, and she's got, you know, because she's President Kennedy's daughter, uh, you know, there's just so much there. You know, you can go back to 1962, mm-hmm. right? So President Kennedy goes up to Newport and he gives the famous We Are All of the Sea speech mm-hmm, mm-hmm. at the kickoff to the America's Cup when Australia was the first non-European British country to compete against the United States for the America's Cup. So mm-hmm. he gives this wonderful speech uh, about that. And then, of course, his own World War II history, you know, PT-109, mm-hmm. Solomon's, you know, north, uh, uh, northeast of uh, Australia there, you know, uh, and, uh, and she brings all, you know, she's that. Mm-hmm. I, I just can't speak uh, highly enough of, of what I think that she would bring uh, to Canberra. Harry, let me finish by asking how optimistic do you feel about America and its staying power in this part of the world, in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the United States and where we are in the Indo-Pacific for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is the most immediate threat we face is a threat from North Korea. Uh, I, I think that we have demonstrated that that can be managed. Uh, I know that President Moon and his team and President Biden and his team are working this very hard. I've said that the, the biggest challenge to the United States, uh, long-term challenge, is China. And I think that people in the region, certainly in the United States, are coming to understand the nature of of Chinese pressure and and what China is willing to do and bring to bear in order to get its way. So that's that's cause for optimism. I think the most important thing that we have that causes me to be optimistic is our network of friends, allies, and partners uh, in the region and especially in the Indo-Pacific. It's been said that America has 55 or 56 allies. Most of those are in Europe because of, of NATO. Uh, but, you know, it's our alliances that set us apart from the totalitarian regimes in the world. North Korea, one ally, China. China, one ally, North Korea, Russia, uh, you know, and, and, uh, uh, and, and Iran and the like. So, uh, you know, it's, it, I'm very optimistic because of our uh, relationships that we have with our friends, allies, and partners. And that's why. President Biden's approach, I think, is, is so spot on because he recognizes the essential nature of alliances uh, in a world as interconnected as ours is. Well, Harry Harris, your career has taken you from Yokosuka to Crossville, from Annapolis to Guantanamo, from Honolulu to Seoul to Colorado Springs. We were very sorry not to host you for the Lowy Lecture in 2018, but the Lowy Institute always gets its man. And I'm grateful <laughs> that now that you've, you've come on the director's chair and when you finally do get down to Australia after your sliding doors moment, I hope you will visit us at the Lowy Institute. So in the meantime, Admiral Harry Harris, thank you very much for speaking with me today on the director's chair. Thanks, Michael, very much. I've enjoyed this. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fullylove. Thanks for listening, and please tune in to the next episode of The Director's Chair.